Welcome to this podcast with DTP. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTP's deputy editor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by uh, Barbara Mintzes, who is the associate professor at the School of Pharmacy at the Faculty of Medicine and Health of the Charles Perkins Centre of the University of Sydney. Is is that right? Yes, that's correct. Hello. Uh, just before we start, um, getting on to, to to you and my questions for you. Can you just say a little bit about Charles Perkins? The sentence obviously named after him. I, I didn't know anything about him. I Googled him, found that he'd, he'd had a, an interesting life, lived in the UK, had a trial for Everton Football Club. Yes. And who, actually, is, who is he? I just heard that he, he also trialed for Manchester United and he actually played for Bishop Auckland. So I know a lot about his football history now. Uh, but he was uh, the first Aboriginal graduate of the University of Sydney and went on to be very involved in movements for Aboriginal rights. You know, the centre that I'm working at is actually a centre that focuses mostly on obesity and chronic diseases. So uh, it's interesting, you know, why were we named the Charles Perkins Centre? And uh, I, just, I just asked in preparation for this podcast because I'd always known that Charles Perkins was something was someone that the university is quite proud as have to have as a graduate, uh, and that uh, the center has actually been painted in Aboriginal colors. Uh, really, kind of interesting, interesting idea of. Uh, pushing the idea of multidisciplinary research, but also really the idea of working across disciplines and, and challenging prevailing ways of thinking, trying to think in new ways to solve very difficult problems. And he applied that to uh, working for Indigenous rights in Australia in lots of different ways. And the idea is really that in this building, we're trying to work together to improve healthcare, trying to deal with the obesity epidemic in one way or another, and uh, find solutions to a lot of actually difficult problems. Uh, and is Aboriginal health a key issue for your department? Is, is it something that they, there's a disproportionate disadvantage for, for people from an Aboriginal background? major disadvantage, a life expectancy that's about 10 years less than the rest of us Australians, lots of poverty, uh, lots of chronic diseases. But our centre is starting to have more of an Aboriginal health presence. But I would say in general, not really as much as it should have. And uh, in terms of really trying to work towards solving a lot of the problems that are uh, that are facing Aboriginal people. Okay, that uh, sets the scene nicely. Let's talk a bit, little bit about your your background, um, certainly your academic background. What did you study at university, um, and went on to do a PhD? What was what, what was the basis of that? So I studied environmental science actually at university as an undergrad. I studied biology and geography, uh, physical geography. 
And so I'm not working in that field, as, as you might have guessed. Uh, I ended up actually going and then working for nonprofit health organizations for around 15 years after, after I um, had my undergraduate degree and didn't go back to do a PhD until a lot later. So I, I first worked with a women's health organization in Vancouver and then ended up moving to Europe and working with Health Action International. And what was the, what was the spark that sort of moved you from your first undergraduate studies into the sort of the health field? I think it was partially personally having uh, kind of some difficulties as a consumer in the healthcare system. You know, I ended up working with a women's health organization, probably very common and particularly at that time, but unfortunately hasn't disappeared as a young woman that I I needed an abortion and found out that actually it was Ill- illegal and I needed three signatures. I waited more than a month to actually have one from when I knew I was pregnant. And sort of being confronted with that situation is what moved me in the direction of, of then first starting to volunteer with a women's health organization and then working with one. And once I was working there, I very quickly gravitated into the area of women and drugs. And uh, as a result, I sort of have been working on on drug policy issues ever since. And, uh, you know, some of the same problems that we're facing now were uh, also happening in the late 80s, early 90s as well. And, And those key problems well, what, 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 what did, what were your concerns? I would say they would be things like uh, medicalization of normal life, um, some drug safety scandals, and um, consumer experience and being on the receiving end of drug safety scandals not really being dealt with very well. So, uh, really, how I ended up getting into um, pharmaceutical issues to begin with was working with people who had been exposed to diethylstilbestrol, which was used very commonly in pregnancy in many countries, including in the UK. And I became very involved in the DES, diethylstilbestrol or DES action group in Canada. And through that group, started um, we're collaborating with some of the organizations in Europe and particularly the Dutch DES Action Group. And it's really through that work that I then started working with Health Action International, which has much more of a focus on both access to essential medicines as well as pharmaceutical policy from a public interest perspective. What's really interesting is that those issues are probably as acute now, aren't they, as they were then? Certainly, I mean, if you think back to, well, we had a report out last year that looked at several either drug issues or device issues that had caused women harm in the UK. We've had the sodium valproate story rumbling on for years uh, in terms of its effect on and during pregnancy. And then the medicalization of kind of normal life, as you as you as you called it, again seems to be certainly with licensing of medicine seems to be still a major major issue. If anything, it's in many ways gotten worse. That's true. Like one of the issues that was uh, you know front and center at the time was 
medicalization of menopause and hormone replacement therapy. And what's interesting is that this is long before the Women's Health Initiative and, you know, the results of the trial showing that really on balance, a long-term HRT does more harm than benefit. But um, there's that real concern of the way that something that was a life stage, there was that real concern that something that's really just a life stage had been transformed into a, a medical event, essentially to, to sell drugs. And just touching on that, do you think, because we seem to have swung, we swung one way in terms of lots of use of HRT, then we swung back with concerns over safety issues. Where is it now? Because it appears to be swinging slightly back towards, in the UK, it's certainly a high profile issue at the moment in terms of raising awareness of, of the menopause, discussing, you know, which is great, you know, discussing the issues that affect women, but there seems to be a move back to HRT again. It's interesting because in a way it never disappeared. And that there's very interesting analysis carried out by Adrian Fu Berman looking at uh, all of the ghost-written medical articles on HRT post-Women's Health Initiative, and a lot of what I would call the muddying of the waters in terms of looking at the results of that trial and then reanalyzing for specific subgroups. So you carrying out a number of post hoc subgroup analyses that then showed that while younger women didn't have the harm that older women had, but instead of looking first at everyone who was involved in the trial as a whole, it's really pulling, pulling out a, a specific subgroup. So I would take some of that with a grain of salt. It's really an interesting question because it comes up a lot. That element of, yes, uh, being attentive to, to, to health concerns that women have or say that um, disadvantaged populations might have and to ensure that medicine is actually paying appropriate attention and people are getting adequate care. But then there is that uh, sort of slide into where do you consider it too much care? And at least the one thing that has changed is that women are no longer being told that they have this major life decision to make at age 50 of should they, you know, for the protection of their health, go on these drugs for the rest of their life or not. I think that there is at least a recognition that this is symptomatic relief, that there are other things often that you can do for the same symptoms, and it's really weighing what this drug would do. Does it make it fe you feel better? And, you know, it's a short-term solution rather than something that a person would go on long-term. So there has been a change in that sense. One of one of the, um, I suppose, marketing issues that we're still dealing with, isn't it? The, um, the the role of key opinion leaders versus what does the evidence actually say? I'm just wondering whether we've made a difference on that because we still see it in the UK. There's a lot of information that we try and um, get across. There are still key opinion leaders who who will talk about medicines and perhaps not uh, share the same messages that we would we would share. Is that still the same problem? I think that that's still the same problem globally. 
not just a UK problem. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the move, what, what has changed is it's easier to find out about those funding links because of the shift towards transparency of industry payments. So we now, you know, there we you now have in the US the open payments database. Um, in the UK, you have the the um, I think it's what is disclosure UK. Disclosure. Yeah, that is um, I think it's an industry self-regulatory initiative, um, but actually a much more user-friendly database than most industry self-regulatory initiatives in other countries in, in Europe, for instance. Um uh, in kind of interesting side. So we can find out more about the payments that key opinion leaders get and that also, uh, you know, doctors get in general and other health professionals. But I don't think that there's been a shift in terms of fewer payments. In fact, if you look at the U.S. situation in general, the payment level um, has gone up over time, not down. There might have been a bit of a glip in terms of the pandemic affecting it because sales of sales reps not coming to doctors' offices in person. But um, in general, the payment level has gone up. I mean, it's interesting perspective because we tend to think that in the UK, the disclosure is a bit of a soft. It's not mandatory. It's it's run by the. Uh, Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries. So it's led by them. It's on, they manage the process. And we look across to the States at the open payments database and think, wow, you know, that really is the gold standard in terms of collecting 100% of the, of the information on, on payments, being able to search it and being pretty, pretty sure that you're going to find most of the payments, whereas we, we're not convinced. So I agree with you 100%. It is the gold standard. And it's also really an interesting gold standard because the companies are not just reporting the payments. They're actually reporting what drug was being promoted each time there's a payment made. So for any drug that is publicly financed in the U.S., they have to uh, provide information about the drugs linked to payments. And if I, you know, if you compare it to the UK database, I agree with you. The UK one is better than a number of European databases right. where okay. you don't even have a searchable cent central database, but uh, it has the major problem that it has an opt-out clause that a person has to give consent before their data will be made publicly available. And um, that, of course, means that it will never provide comprehensive data. In Australia, we also have an industry self-regulatory process. And uh, the industry, when they, when they introduced reporting of payments to individuals, um, they first set it up with a similar opt-out clause. And at the time, they were under, uh, their code of practice also had to be ratified by a governmental agency, the Australian um, Consumer Competition. Uh, I always get it wrong, the ACCC, but it's got Consumers and Competition Commission right. in there. And it was essentially set up to uh, prevent unfair competition. And the ACCC uh, insisted that they um, get rid of the opt out clause 
And so in Australia, we have every doctor's payment reported or every health professional payment actually reported, except what the industry did do is that they kept food and drink out of the mix. And they had had a different reporting system beforehand, which was based on sponsored events rather than being based on individuals. And with that reporting system, payments for food and drink were also reported. And in 90%, to over 90% of sponsored events, there was food and drink provided. So we have this major amount of the payments that have just been sort of shoved under <laughs> underground with having individual payments now um, being reported in Australia. So I think uh, I agree with you 100% uh, legislation is the way to go with this. And the U.S. open payments is a gold standard. And, and certainly we use it at, at DTB that if we're reporting on a study that's American authors, we will we will double check both that the declarations are consistent. Uh, and also because often often a declaration may say nothing of direct relevance to the drug under study, but then you look at their in, their connection with the company who have made that drug. And you find millions of pounds of, of or dollars of of sponsorship, um, which kind of makes the, the claim that the okay the drug itself they weren't funded for, but they have done extensive work with the, with the companies. And it, and I I still am surprised by how surprised I am when I see the level of payments that that go on in in the states. Yeah, huge, huge. huge so payments. we just did an analysis in Australia with our payments database looking at the conflicts reported by uh, Australian authors of recent clinical trials and um, then matching them to the payments in the database and using the the ICMJE criteria as a standard, which most medical journals will stick to, or some have higher standards than that. Um, And... uh, we found that uh, like about a quarter, about a quarter of the Australian authors had not declared conflicts when they had conflicts and that almost half of the articles, the, so the, the clinical trial reports were affected. So I suspect if you did a similar study in the UK, you'd also find a massive underreporting. Yes, yes, and, and um, I mean something we could we could we could try doing. But again, as you say, the, the, you're not guaranteed at finding 100 percent of the of the the payment information. No, so but that, that, in Australia we don't have it either. But despite as we don't have the opt out clause, but we we don't have food and drink yeah. either or research yes. payments. So, so this this whole area of of conflicts of interest the effect of of pharma how's that shaping your your research at the moment or areas of interest are the are the particular topics that you're you're still keen to explore in terms of relationships pharma because you i mean you've you've talked about your link with uh therapeutics initiative and and presenting independent evidence-based information you mentioned prescrea and your work with them and again you know as fellow members of of ISDB with, with along with Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin, we all strive to to produce as um, impartial and as independent information as, as we can. So, what other areas do you think we should be delving into? 
Okay, I think I'm also very interested in what happens in the medical literature with safety studies. So with observational studies that are looking at infrequent or longer term harms of medicines, because I think that there's also a whole role with conflicts of interest in that area that makes it very difficult for doctors to know what to believe and who to believe. That's an area that I've started to, I've done a little bit of work on looking at a few, you know, few kind of case studies issues in which um, the literature was quite divided. So we did a study looking at authors of secondary reports, so editorials, commentaries, letters to the editor, and what their position was on um, cardiovascular and psychiatric risks of varenicline, um, the smoking cessation drug, um, and then just looked at declared conflicts versus position and found a very strong relationship between conflicts of interest and um, minimization of the risks. And we chose those risks because they had been featured in regulatory safety advisories. So uh, UKMHRA and other regulators had uh, issued advisories about those risks. And uh, I mean, another thing that I've looked at is comparison of uh, venous thromboembolic risks with different birth control pills. So with drospirinone containing pills, with uh, Yaz and Yasmin um, versus older levonorgestrel-containing oral contraceptives. And that's another area where the evidence is very clear-cut that there are certainly some oral contraceptives that are riskier than others. And if you sort of looked at it in a global way, you'd say, well, maybe if they prevented pregnancy better than the less risky drugs, to a, you know, to a, a clinically meaningful extent, it would be worth going for those riskier ones. But actually, they're pretty equivalent. They are equivalent in terms of pregnancy prevention. So that's an, another area where, um, with a colleague um, Teresa Alves, I looked at the conflicts of interest of authors versus position. And again, we found a very strong relationship, but often the argument that was being made was a methods argument. So that's something that interests me, especially because I think that there was a lot of misuse as well of uh, arguments about methods and about uh, whether observational studies can or cannot be used to assess causality that uh, is sort of helping to muddy the waters, you could say. So you're suggesting that those perhaps most conflicted would argue about the science of the studies rather than the findings. It was more about whether whether the process was correct. Well, the findings are dismissed because there's a problem with the science often. Do you, I mean, do you think in general we have a problem with discussing harms of medicines? I'm mean, thinking particularly, you know, in certainly post or during the pandemic, post-pandemic, um, where we've seen the the speed and, and you know, success of, of the vaccination campaigns. We've seen drugs emerge for um, treating viral infections, COVID viral infections. And we've all latched onto this is a good thing because, you know, the, we, the pandemic was, was awful and um, the number of deaths and certainly in the U UK and worldwide, 
and therefore any medicine's a good good medicine and so we've almost become immune to, to to harms or less less willing to talk about them yeah well you know i think that there's always that balance of benefit versus harms in any consideration of the use of a medicine but i would agree with you that yes there's also been a bit of this idea that you shouldn't talk about harms because then maybe people will take foolish decisions say with vaccination for instance I think that consumers often don't get good benefits information either. So it's that side that whether people actually are aware that, uh, you know, if they take a specific drug, their chances of having their condition improved um, it might be one in 10 compared to not taking the drug, for instance. Like something, the, the limits to benefits are not, often not well explained. Yes, I agree. Um, I think we've got slightly better at it, but yes, I think you, I think you're right again. And a, a lot of it is still about how much can you contextualise those for the individual, um, so that I know for me what that might mean, as opposed to for me as part of a population of a hundred people. You know, what, what, what's the difference, um, and, and how do I make that make that decision? Just going back on one of the themes you talked about earlier which was about medicalizing normal normal life just touch quickly on the on our article you wrote for DTB uh, which was looking at two drugs that have been licensed in in the states um, and how you felt or did you feel that those drugs were being over promoted in terms of a condition that was being, just part of normal life. Had we had we created a, a a a condition in order to sell the drugs? I mean, perhaps you could contextualize it by by talking a little bit about those drugs and what what the condition was. Well, so those drugs were drugs for low sexual desire in women, and it, it's an interesting example of creating a condition because I think if you look at it from a marketing perspective you can see that the drugs that are used for erectile dysfunction, Viagra and alternatives, have been enormously successful in terms of the market. Um, those drugs uh, differ from the drugs that have been marketed for uh, low desire among women in that they are actually effective for the purpose for which they're being marketed, which is for men who have difficulty having an erection, that they actually can increase blood flow and increase the likelihood of a man being able to get an erection. Uh, for these drugs, there were two things going on that are problematic. One is how the condition has been defined. And then um, the definitions of what would be a successful outcome to drug treatment. So how do you show whether a drug for desire is effective? And then there's that side of loss of desire that is so much um, tied into relationships rather than being um, something that's solely individual that just gets left out of the picture if that is defined as a biological condition. I think, you know, really, Leonor Tiefer has said it 
better than anyone else, which is that it's whether uh, sex is more like dancing or more like digestion. And yeah, so just kind of as a background, I mean, it, it, there's a whole side with this where uh, particularly the work that Ray Moynihan has done, uh, excellent uh, investigative journalism, a lot of it published in the BMJ, has looked at the money trail in terms of the consensus conferences, uh, the development of tools to, um, you know, to assess low sexual desire, essentially the creation of uh, this condition. Uh, there are lots of other conditions, I'm sure, that, that um, you know, you could talk about that could be uh, created as well. I guess partly perhaps my interest in, in it as well came out of my background of working with feminist women's health organizations and um, the, the, uh, the whole side where economic and social disadvantage is also sort of left out of the equation when you start to define desire within a relationship as being a biological problem that the woman has so that's a whole So just going back to you know, concerns over harms and, and how good we are at discussing harms, um, you did some research into particularly information that pharma reps gave to clinicians, I think mainly, was it mainly in pri primary care, looking at the details on, on benefits and harms. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about that, that study and its findings? This was a study that I led, you know, together mainly with Joel Lexton, in which we recruited doctors to report on the information sales representatives provided to them. And this was a study in Canada, in the US, and in France. And partly we were interested to know whether the quality of information was better in a setting that had a stronger pharmaceutical um, promotion regulation. Um, and we were particularly interested in how often any information was provided on harms, including rare serious harms. So it kind of gets back to your question about uh, the difficulty in talking about harms. Anyway, for me, the, it's I guess I would see it as also kind of a key piece of research that I've carried out. Uh, and uh, what we we used a um, kind of uh, earlier Delphi process that um, had asked doctors what is the basic information that they need for safe prescribing for a prescribing decision, and so the basically the elements of information uh, that were needed, and then we looked at how often they were or were not provided. And uh, mainly our hypothesis was that they um, there would be differences between the countries and how often they were provided. I think from a Canadian perspective, we thought that Canada did the worst job of regulating pharmaceutical pr promotion, so they would probably be provided less often. What we found was that um, that basket of information, which was just like sticking to the approved indication, uh, mentioning at least one harmful effect, I think was in there, um, you know, at least one 
common harm, serious harm, contraindication, that actually less than 2% of the drug promotions overall had that minimally adequate information provided. And we didn't find a difference between the countries. So I just thought that that was a bit interesting because from a UK perspective, um, I'm not sure what proportion of of doctors see sales representatives, uh, but certainly uh, in many countries, um, uh, many doctors see sales representatives. This isn't getting at whether the information was accurate if it was provided. That's a whole other level. It was just, was it there or not? And the finding were, I mean, bottom line was that it didn't matter which jurisdiction you're in, which country you're in, everyone did it badly. Yeah, it was a little better in France than in the North American settings, in fact. Um, And that might have been because they had had a safety scandal uh, in 2010 with the drug mediator. It was a little better, but in terms of that basket of basic information that a doctor might need as a background to a prescribing decision, uh, almost never provided. And the limiting factor was really mention of serious harms. So it was about, I think, 5% of the promotions mentioned uh, any serious harms. And we had around like over 1,600 promotions, drug-specific promotions in the study. So it's a decent sample as well in terms of in terms of looking at this. And could you tell, they didn't mention harm, serious harms. Uh, how much, could you gauge how much of the, the, this conversation was taken up by talking about benefits? Yes. So they mentioned them more often than harm. So in the I think in overall, about 80% of the uh, interactions had some mention of benefit and around 40% had mention of harm. So a lot, like I'm I'm now saying it off the top of my head, but I'm uh, fairly close. I think that might have been for the North American setting. For the French setting, there was some mention of harm and I think a little over half. But that meant in the we had three settings in Vancouver and Montreal and in Sacramento and North America. And then in all of those, most of the time when there was an interaction with a sales representative, they didn't say anything about harm. Um, This happened, this study happened to have taken place during the period where opioids were being heavily promoted in North America as well. If you think of the kind of the opioid epidemic and everything that's happened with overpromotion of opioids in primary care. So we went back to look at our subset of promotions that were opioid promotions. And we had also asked the doctor just in free text to say, what was the key message from the sales representative? And so we pulled that out for the opioid promotions. And uh, quite often it was non-addictive or you know this is a <laughs> yeah, this is a great drug for elderly patients so there were certainly a lot of claims of uh, that were very problematic interesting very interesting be interesting whether it's changed changed if you were to repeat it now would it be any any different has anything has anything changed um, that's a good question. Yeah, I'd love to repeat it in another country if you yeah. ever want to do a UK UK study. I think in the US, there has, the opioid manufacturers have uh, certainly had a few legal cases against them. And at a certain 
point, I know at least Purdue was as not giving payments to doctors anymore. So there has been a bit of a shift that's occurred out of uh, that massive crisis in the US. Barbara, uh, many thanks for your time today and for allowing me to quiz you on your career. And we look forward to your continued involvement with DTB. And thank you to those of you who've been listening to this podcast. You can find a series of our 60th anniversary interviews on our website, dtb.bmj.com, along with our regular In This Issue monthly podcasts. And if you have any comments on our content, please don't hesitate to email us at dtb.bmj.com. At